It's easy to notice the distance between people, across a room, across the aisle, across the globe. Often, the media, politicians, educators, and even our neighbors seem to emphasize difference, creating chasms between us. But what if the shortest distance between two people is actually a story? Welcome to The Shortest Distance, Story Center's new podcast. We'll be sharing stories and conversations that explore the joys and challenges of human connection. For our first season, we're highlighting some of the great work that's coming out of Story Center's podcast storytelling workshops. Here's Chapter 2, Hummingbirds, which features a conversation between Story Center's Amy Hill and poet and creative writing professor Anne Haven. I think I'm just um, in awe of them as creatures, and I'm in awe of all kinds of creatures in the more-than-human world and love to learn about um, their natural history and habitat, and it just helps to nurture a sense of wonder being alive with all of these creatures on the planet right now. That's Anne Haven talking about how she feels about hummingbirds and about the natural world. Really, who doesn't love hummingbirds with their delicate grace and superhero speed and hovering abilities? I talked with Anne recently about hummingbirds and about how she came to love the outdoors, about her experience of our podcast storytelling workshop at Story Center, and about why stories of nature are so important. Your writing is so tender and so beautiful. It really shows the love you have for hummingbirds and for the natural world. And I wondered, is there a story that you can share that points to the origins of the reverence you have? Well, there's a lot of them, but I think I first fell deeply in love with the natural world in New Hampshire. Um, my grandparents had a cabin on a lake there, and we would spend time in the summer there. And my mom would just kind of set us free during the day to go in the canoe or the rowboat and explore the lake, um, to go swimming and explore the woods. And then she'd ring this cowbell on the dock and call us in at dinner. So it was just this place of like total freedom and exploration. And, uh, I, I used to go fishing and catch crayfish and follow the loons in the canoe. And, um, I just loved being in that place. My little sister is, uh, five years younger than me. And so when I was a kid, that was enough younger to, um, be able to get her to do what I want. <laughs> and so I would wake her up while she'd be kind of half asleep in her red and white checkered nightgown. And I'd be like, come on, we're going fishing. And so she, I just have a memory of her coming out, sitting in the back of the rowboat with her eyes closed in her nightgown and a fishing net across her lap. And we were the only people on the lake as the lake was just getting light and there was mist rising off the lake and the loon was calling and we were drifting on the water and I was rowing us into um, a little cove and 
I kept waking her up and saying, get ready, get that net ready. I was also lucky enough to go to a lake every summer with my family when I was growing up. In our case, in California, up in the mountains. And my mom also encouraged freedom in that place. My brothers and sisters and I made up elaborate games in the pine forest. We jumped off rocks into icy cold water so deep and dark that you couldn't see the bottom once you were ten feet out from the shore. There was a landline, but there was no television, no stereo, and of course, no smartphones. It was blissful. Those early experiences absolutely shaped my own relationship to the natural world. Before we hear more of my conversation with Anne, let's listen to part of the audio segment she produced in the podcast Storytelling Workshop. She talks about the magic of hummingbirds, and then she brings in her friend Janie Chadash. Janie does research on hummingbirds, and we'll hear her describe what it's like to witness them up close. Hear that? For me, that's the hum of summer. That's the hum in hummingbird. That's the sound of wings beating 4,000 times in a single minute. Powering those wings is a heart the size of a mouse turd. That turd heart is the largest heart in proportion to a body of any animal. That little big heart can beat 1,260 times during that same minute. To fuel such speed, that hummingbird needs to suck up a lot of nectar. She might visit a thousand flowers in a day and suck up many times her body weight in food. Have you noticed how a hummingbird hovers and flies backwards, forwards, sideways, up or down, or in any direction she wants? That's because unlike any other bird, a hummingbird's wings can move in circles or figure eights. I haven't seen it, but they'll even somersault in the air to catch an insect. I could go on and on about the miracle that is a hummingbird. But how do we really wake up to see such a miracle? I mean, really see and feel it. For me, it helps to follow my friend Janie along a mountain creek near our hometown of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Janie Chadash is a birder, a naturalist, a teacher of ecology, and a writer. She is head over heels for hummingbirds, and currently, Janie is deep in a project of research and writing a book about hummingbirds, specifically about the rufous hummingbird. The male rufous is that gorgeous, ruby-throated bully of a hummingbird that hangs around feeders and mountain meadows during summers in our home romping ground of New Mexico and Colorado. Janie and I bring our binoculars on walks and we look at birds. We say, oh my God, and I can't stand it a lot. We goo and gah and we feed our amazement. We feed the muscle of wonder. So how did Janie wake up to this wonder? For her, it started in the palm of her hand. So 
you know, the first time I entangled a hummingbird from the net, you just, you're sitting there, it's like a little problem, you know, you're holding kind of the net cupped in your hand and the bird and you're very gently taking off these little pieces of netting off of its feathers and you could just see the individual feathers, the eyes, the little tiny feet, that beak, and you're just so gently, you know, taking it out. And the thing is that hummingbirds, um, when they get stressed, they, they can go into torpor, which is sort of a short-term hibernation. And I, I, I don't really think that's what it was doing, but often a hummingbird would just sit on your hand after you were done taking it out. Most of the birds you would take back to sort of the processing station and you would get the data and you'd put the band on. Hummingbird, you would just open your hand. And so to see one of these birds kind of swiveling its head, and they're actually very vocal, kind of making their little chirping sound, um, the light reflecting on those metallic, those iridescent feathers. And I don't, I don't know if I even have the words to describe what that was like, just watching this little being sit in my hand, sort of realizing I'm free, I can go, I'm going to gather my wits about me for a minute, and then and it was off. I was so captivated when I first heard this that when we spoke, I couldn't resist telling Anne about a hummingbird story of my own. When my daughter was about five months old, I was staring out the bathroom window into the branches of a laurel tree next door. It was way too early in the morning after a night of not much sleep at all, and I saw what seemed like this absurdly tiny little cup-like nest tucked under some leaves and sure enough it was a hummingbird nest with tiny eggs in it. I did not at all have an easy time with that period of my daughter's life when she was an infant. I had some pretty bad postpartum depression. Seeing that little tiny hummingbird nest was like the universe reminding me to just get out of my own head and my own sort of singular new baby misery and just pull the lens back to find context with other living beings and um, connect with just the beauty and the mystery of life. And I wondered if you have had um, a specific encounter with a hummingbird that stands out. Um, I guess my first thought is that I experience um that kind of deep attention outward to other creatures in the natural world to be very healing. Um, and I think so much of our world has gotten insulated from that and um, that we're lonely for those kinds of encounters or we long for those kinds of encounters. So I, I can imagine and I understand how just seeing a nest like that could be a really amazing healing thing. And, um, yeah, I had a hummingbird nest in the apple tree outside in our driveway, um, that I found and a hummingbird just kept zooming in and out of the apple tree branches. Um, and I noticed that it kept going back into that tree. And so I kept looking around and trying to see if I could find a nest. And I, you know, for weeks I didn't see anything. And then, one day I just saw it was just so difficult to see, but just woven in the notch of a branch. It was just above eye level. So I would get a ladder. So, but I try not to get too close, but 
get up high enough so I could see just those like needle beaks sticking up out of it. And I just, it was just so wonderful to check on it multiple times of a day and see the mom zooming in and out of the tree branches. And, um, I also worried about it because we had like huge storms and I would worry that, um, whether they're going to be okay there. And, um, during that time, that's also when I learned about like how they make their nests with spider silk so that, that they're, can stretch so they're tiny and woven and that they can stretch and enlarge when the babies grow. And I thought that's so amazing. That's the first hummingbird nest that I've found and I always look for them. It just feels so lucky to actually see that. And, um, I know the babies were born. I was actually, um, out of town for, a week or something, I think, when they fledged. So I didn't get to see that happen, but um, I got to see that they were being fed and I kept seeing their little thin, tiny beaks sticking up as the mom would fly over. Yeah, that's just incredible. I wondered if you could speak to how you see the telling and sharing of these kinds of stories like your hummingbird story as making a difference in terms of environmental justice, climate justice. Why do you think storytelling is important? I think storytelling is important because it um, illuminates intimacies of our lives that uh, connect us. And, um, I teach right now, I'm, I teach at a tribal college and, um, we're doing oral history storytelling in my class. And, uh, some of my students have been going back and forth to join the pipeline protests up in Minnesota and zooming from up there and then zooming from home. And, um, and I think that telling those stories of, um, connection to, water and culture and place and ancestry is so important and that we need to amplify the stories that are not told or not heard as much. And um, I think also just stories that remind us how um, nested we are in these uh, ecological systems on the planet are healing in this time of climate collapse like we need to remember the awe and wonder of gratitude of just being here and being part of this living planet we talked a little more about Anne's teaching work and then i asked her how she met her friend janie the researcher who's writing a book about hummingbirds and why she was drawn to her Janie is a, a sort of newer friend. She's a writer, and I'm also a writer, mostly poetry. She writes fiction and nonfiction. And, uh, but the way that we really connected is going birding. And, um, so after work or in the early morning, we'd meet, and she's an excellent birder and knows so many birds just by their calls and, um, the difference between all the different kinds of warblers. So I love going birding with her, and I've learned a lot from her. Janie, I knew, was um, writing a book on hummingbirds, and I'd heard her talk about hummingbirds and heard just the 
enthusiasm in all her stories. So in taking the workshop, I'm just wondering, oftentimes with our storytelling workshops, people sort of come in with one vision of what they think they're going to make, and then they walk out with something completely different. And I'm wondering if anything like that happened to you, or at least how it was that uh, what you came in with in terms of an idea for what you might produce as the podcast segment, how that evolved and shifted as a result of the pieces of the workshop. My impulse and idea was stayed the same, but the framing kind of changed. I think I was just thinking about the desire to interview people and what I learned in the workshop about storytelling and audio storytelling um, helped me to conceive of uh, how to craft something that includes my own voice and frames parts of the interview within a storytelling arc or context. So that was helpful and that was a, a shift for how I thought of the project. I love it that Anne includes her own voice in the podcast segment she created. Her words and perspective add something really rich and important. Towards the end of my conversation with her, I asked if there was anything else she wanted to share. In addition to stories about the natural world, I've been thinking about um, how much I love the sounds that come from the natural world. And this fall, I had two mornings where I woke up in places and just for hours lay there listening to um, an owl calling and then elk bugling. And uh, those sounds are just incredible. In addition to human voices, it's really amazing just to hear the voices of other creatures. Talking about sound, you're making me think of the great sound effects that you used in the podcast, especially of the hummingbird wings, because there's just something so immediately recognizable about that. You know, you don't even have to know that the topic is hummingbirds to know that that's the, the specific sound of hummingbird wings. So lovely. I couldn't resist asking Anne if she'd read one of her poems, and she did, but her new puppy was making kind of loud new puppy sounds in the background, so we're going to hear a different recording that she sent me after we talked. 80. This meadow was once a necklace of beaver ponds my mother has lived long enough to remember. She walks with poles, I carry her pack. We pitch tents near a cut bank of whiskey dark creek. As night loosens and oozes up the valley, the peaks go cindery, remote. We take our plastic cups of whiskey to the open grass where dark condenses in the long stilts of a moose, her dewlap dangling as she plows the meadow like a prow of a ship, like a cello solo tipping into banjo twang. Browsing willows, our smell must hit her sideways, and she swings her giant head, stills herself like a lake behind a dam, churning her discernment. What are we here, mother and daughter, mild and dissolved, our favorite rooms to watch from, thick with forgiveness? 
Two calves wobble out, chasing the roof of her belly. Something human gusts out of us, and the mast of her lifts and fills and sails across the grass, which has knitted itself from water, which is creeping back to forest, which is now an opening where mothers and daughters meet. I told Anne how touched I am by this poem, and that it made me curious about her connection with her mom. Mm, so poignant. That is such a beautiful poem, and it makes me wonder how your relationship with your mom and how your mom's relationship with nature sort of trickled down and translated into your own experience. Yeah, I definitely feel like that's a huge gift that my mom has given me because um, being in nature and wild places has been so important through her whole life. And she shared that since we were little. And um, that's still a place that uh, we connect and that we um, can share together. So I think we might have the same mom or some incarnation of the same mom because it was the same in my family. My mom has been a lifelong Sierra Club member since she was in her teens. And, you know, every time we went on a hike, she would be picking up small bits of trash and putting them in, in her pockets and, and in her backpack. And now I do the same thing. And I, you know, I think of her. A couple of weeks after Anne and I talked, my husband and daughter and I went up to the California lake of my childhood, which narrowly missed being incinerated in the recent Calder fire. The area, like the entire western United States, and like so many other regions around the world, in Australia, in Greece, in Brazil, is at risk of the megafires that are becoming increasingly common as the climate spirals towards collapse. We drove up Highway 50, and I cried when I saw the ashes of all the little cabins that didn't make it through the fire. Their stone chimneys reached skyward amidst the charred pines, echoes of other families' beloved days in the forest. While we were there, my daughter and I did a creek walk. In years past, I hovered behind her as she scaled the waterfall. But this time, she was more in the lead me carefully following her footsteps across the granite. We paused now and again to look at the yellow-green reflection of the aspen trees in the water, or listen to the wind in the trees. By the time we turned back, my pockets and hands were full of an odd collection of Red Bull cans, iced tea bottles, and other evidence of misguided human activity. When we spotted yet another discarded piece of plastic... My daughter looked at me, and then reached down to collect it. I caught a glimpse of one of her many potential adult selves, sitting on one of the rocky ledges we had just climbed down from. Then she saw a squirrel, or maybe she heard a blue jay. And as I turned back to her, the image faded. This episode of The Shortest Distance was created by me, Amy Hill, together with Anne Haven and Ryan Truman. It features the music of Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about Story Center or hear more of Anne's audio piece, visit our website at storycenter.org. 
Click on the link for Podcast Storytelling Workshop and select Listen to Segments Produced by Previous Workshop Participants. We really hope you'll tune in next month, and we'd love it if you'd join one of our many workshops to share a story of your own.